I mean, I, I think a lot of our problems come from kind of not taking ourselves and each other seriously. Um, I mean, it's what human dignity really comes down to, right? Like we talk about human dignity all the time, you know, as if it's something that you, you lose or, you know, it's not something you can lose. You can't lose your human dignity, but you can ignore it, you know, and we can ignore it in each other. And, and I feel like the biggest challenge and invitation comes from just saying like, wow, to really honor that in myself and in the other that's, I mean, that's like a life's work, and it also paves the way for every other good thing that can happen. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone, welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, a junior here, and it's the last week of school, spring quarter 2019. Um, One of the classes I'm taking, um, probably my favorite because of the woman you're about to hear from, um, is Theology, Sex, and Relationships, and it is taught by today's guest, Karen Peterson Ayer. Uh, Dr. Ayer serves on Santa Clara's Religious Studies faculty, and she teaches courses um, and writes about contemporary sexual ethics, bioethics, and human trafficking from both uh, Christian and feminist perspectives. She got her bachelor's in political science from Stanford, her MDiv um, from the Graduate Theological Union, and a master's in philosophy and PhD in ethics at Yale. I'll read a brief part of the course description for that class. It says, This course will explore the ethics of romantic and sexual relationships in light of Christian theological and scriptural tradition, as well as reason and contemporary human experience. We will examine overall relational patterns, including friendship, dating, and sexual intimacy, with the ultimate goal of integrating our best insights into a creative, constructive, and fulfilling sexual ethic for college students in 2019. Uh, In this interview, we discuss why students are so drawn to this course, as well as a couple assignments that have become famous over the years, um, including an anonymous paper and a date assignment. Um, We also talk more generally about uh, love and vulnerability in in college, as well as what that reveals about uh, the human person. Um, We briefly touch on Dr. Ayer's uh, background and how she got into uh, this field, as well as her best advice for uh, both college students and the general population. And she had some really wise words there, so make sure to listen until the end. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the well-loved professor, Karen Peterson-Ayer. Thank you, Karen Peterson-Ayer, for joining me. (laughs) No problem. Yeah, so I'd I'd love to start out with the the class I'm in right now around theology, sex, and relationships. So I know it's a really popular class, and I was surprised on the first day when there were like 10 additional students, I guess. So what what, what do you think it is about the class that generates such like an interest in the student body? Yeah. And, uh, you know, this quarter, so 10 is actually low for, yeah, I've had sometimes like 25 extra people show up. Yeah. I think people are finally starting to realize that just coming on the first day isn't going to buy them a spot. So, (laughs) but um, I think some of it is it's an area of life that we just don't have very many opportunities to really talk about. Mm-hmm. 
And at the same time, that very area of life is totally central to our our identities. Mm -hmm. So who we are and how we live our day-to-day life is, Mm -hmm. is wrapped up in these questions. I mean, not that, I mean, obviously every discipline has a bit of that, but, but not in quite the same way. It's a very personal, you know, it's a class that taps into your personal experience heavily. And so I think, and I think there's, there are very few places to explore that. I mean, the class itself is about framing ways to think about the ethics of sexuality and of, and of sex and, um, and relationships. And, but so the way I do it now, it is taught uh, in the summertime by another faculty person. She does it quite differently. So um, the way I do that is by first having, you know, several weeks devoted to helping people articulate their both their personal experience with respect to sex, but also um, kind of their our social experience with respect to sex and relationships. So, and in a college environment and a young adult environment, that has quite a lot to do with hookup culture. So. Uh, and kind of gendered um, understandings of the self and so forth. So we do a fair amount of that, as you know. Um, you know, what does it mean to grow up in this culture um, with the pressures of being a man or the pressures of being a woman or a boy or a girl? And, you know, what is how do, what directions does that lead us in? You know, what does it mean to enter into the sexual culture of a campus environment with those expectations? What does that look like? What problems does that lead to? You know, what joys does that lead to? Um, so I think being able to articulate oneself, both in terms of gender, we do a little bit in terms of race, ethnicity. I feel like I need to do a better job with that, but working on that. But, you know, how, how do we, how do I live in this body, you know, this this very specific gendered, class-based, race-based body in my environment? Um and, you know, and how does that shape my experience? So hearing other people's experience and articulating our own is kind of the focus of maybe the first like three and a half weeks of the class. Hmm. Uh, after that, I try to give um, some tools to begin to think about that. So normative tools. Um, so it's a religious studies class. So most of the sources that we look at are stemming with from either a, a, an explicitly religious background or a religiously informed, not all of them. Um, So we look at what the Catholic Church, how it has begun to address questions about sex. Um, But we also look at, you know, ways other either kind of reformist Catholics or more radical perspectives begin to look at sex. And then that takes us up to a period where um, in the last kind of maybe third, I guess, of the quarter, where we start to look at more specific beyond just hookup culture, we look at more specific iterations of, you know, sexual expression or sex work. You know, this is where we do the debates on, you know, things like, or not just debates, but um, have conversations about, uh, you know, what does the introduction of kind of the ubiquity of the online experience have to do with sex, you know, or how does dating look in relation to hookup culture or what have you. So kind of more, I guess, applied questions. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I guess compared to most uh, university classes and disciplines, there is just such a big focus on, like, the personal experience side, you yep. know, like in almost any other, yep. you know, business engineering, political right. science, any type of class. You're studying what others have done in the past almost exclusively, right, and, and responding to that. But yeah. do you think there's additional value in, like, 
studying what's literally happening here yeah. at Santa Clara or yeah. bringing, like, yeah. h- how do you balance bringing personal experience in along with kind yeah. of studying more like these normative or historical yeah. sources? Yeah, I absolutely do think there's value. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that, um, in, so in, in the discipline of, of theology and specifically ethics, experience itself has moral weight. And, you know, when you study history, you know, history is written by the victors, right? So you have to, you in order to really understand what that history is about, you you have to think about what the experiences of the people writing the history. So, um, and it's the same in any discipline. Experience does inform that discipline. It's just that we often don't admit it, mm-hmm. right? And so when we're talking about sex, now this is a, and relationships, this is a realm where, um, unfortunately, people who have kind of minority status within sexual expression have been largely suppressed or ignored, right? And so, and that's led, especially in religious environments, to a lot of problems. So, um, you know, in the last sort of 50 years or so, there's been a little bit of a turn there where we recognize, okay, um, experience matters, and not everybody's experience has been amplified. So, um, and if we're not amplifying and even being aware of our own and others' experience, we're not really doing an honest job, right, with with the project of ethics. So that's not the only thing we do. So, you know, we need to look at what the tradition has said, what the reasoning process is, um, you know, what what is the scripture, what does Holy Scripture say? We do a little bit on that, not a lot, but, um, and then bring that into conversation with that experience, right? And what, and, and in order to do that, you have to be able to articulate it. So, um, you know, I think that we're not so bad as a culture at talking about experience, but we don't tend to do it academically. Mm-hmm. Like, as you point out, mm-hmm. most courses, they don't ask you to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really am a pretty firm believer that if we're not doing that when we're talking about sex, we're not really talking about sex. We're talking about somebody else's idea about sex. So, um, so we have to be aware of that. We have to, and, and it has, to, and it always comes out. You know, things like how um, women's experience vis-a-vis hookup culture is not exactly the same as it. You know, the ideal is not the same as the reality. Now, that's not going to come out until people are invited to reflect upon, wow, what's my own experience? You know, and and what's your experience? You know, and how do those intersect with each other? So. You know, it depends on the class, the particular class, how well that works. But I do think it's um, in every section of the course, I try to invite people to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. So I do in my other classes, too. Um, but in this particular one, it feels um, it just feels very, very important. Like we're not doing the project right if we don't do that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Along the lines of sharing experiences, one of the assignments is this anonymous paper, right? Yes. Which is you know, is a unique assignment because, you know, there's no attachment to whoever wrote it. Um, and you right. give the option right. of whether or not that student wants to share with the the broader class. But I, I guess, like, is there still is there still value in writing that paper, you think, if only the student writes it and then yeah. you read it and then it never yeah. sees the light of day? Yeah, or, yeah. Well, it does see the light of day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing. So, yes, I absolutely think uh-huh. there is. I, um you know, some of the, I mean, some of the very best papers I've ever gotten, people don't want anyone else to read it. 
Um, I think the project of taking one's own experience seriously is really important. And, and that, that assignment is designed to do that. So, and I, and mostly I get great responses. I get people who really do take it seriously. So, you know, I ask people to really look deeply to, to really examine their own past, to see what wisdom lies there. Um, and I think the, I think our culture really doesn't do a good job at, at asking us to do that. Either we, Either we do it superficially, like on Facebook or Instagram or something, where we're just kind of projecting this image of what we want to be, or or even in things like blogs, you know, often they're just very, very superficial. So being invited, in some ways being invited in a private environment, sort of like journaling or something, yeah, yeah. you know, to examine one's own experience, I actually think that leads people. It is always the thing in the evals at the end of the quarter that people like the best, mm. always, without a doubt. That's the overwhelming thing people liked. And and I think it's because it it I'm asking people to take themselves seriously. Mm. And I don't think our culture really does that, you mm. know? And and honestly, a lot of religious practices, they don't really do that either. They, you know, not, some do. I don't, I don't want to say that. I think actually the Jesuit tradition in some ways is the best of the best here. Like it asks, mm. it asks us to take ourselves seriously. But to the degree that we just think that religion is about what somebody else is telling us to do, mm we're not really encountering the divine at all. We're just encountering somebody else's kind of interpretation of the divine. Mm. So, you know, in the Jesuit tradition, um, we are invited to, it's called seeing God in all things. You've heard of this. So the idea of um, recognizing the movement of the divine in our own lives is, it's actually shared in many Protestant churches as well. Not all, but many that I think is not, it's a, it's not doable until you take a deep inward look. So that particular assignment is trying to ask people to take a deep inward look, you mm -hmm. know, and some people go deeper than others, right? Mm -hmm. um, some people are, I mean, some of those papers are superficial, but a lot of them aren't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 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 Is there any way that we can learn to both like take our own experiences seriously and also see the divine in all things like without that assignment you know like if you're not in that yeah. class like is it because there's a certain level of like uh like like it's still an assignment that you must turn in in a way that like a yep. journal might be a little more yep. that's like oh whenever i feel like it i'll go over right here so is, is there any way that we can start to like build those habits yeah or practice i think that's a that's a great question actually uh there was a feminist thinker um, named Nell Morton, who coined this phrase called hearing each other into speech. And um, I think that I really love that phrase. And the reason is because I think that many people, probably not all, but many, they are afraid or reluctant to look inside and, and, and identify what's there and then speak it. And so we need to be invited. We need to be told actually what's inside you that matters you know that is important and and invited to look there see it touch it feel it articulate it voice it now journaling is a little different because you really are that's fully just yourself and i think i mean i, I actually am a huge fan of journaling but um but i think it's pretty easy to just set that aside if nobody's kind of holding your feet to the fire and saying do this mm -hmm. <laughs> you know whereas this assignment i say do this right you know <laughs> you have to turn something into me like i'm not going to know that it's you but i'm going to know if you don't give me a paper right. so 
it's not really coercive, but it's invitational. Right. You know, it's asking people to, to look, to take themselves seriously. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that you could do that. I mean, certainly people who are motivated do it all the time, you know, in their, in their own kind of introspective work or, or journaling or whatever. Um, but I think some people do need, you know, to be, to be asked, to be pushed. And maybe especially in something like sex, you know, because we, we're scared. We run away from that. We're, we're filled with shame. We're filled with fear. We're filled with regret. You know, uh, you name it. Any negative emotion, it's probably there, you know, for most people when they think about sex. And mm -hmm. so um, being invited to sort of find something positive in that is, mm -hmm. I think it's a really sacred move, actually, mm -hmm. um, and important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the spoken word we listened to today where the guy mentioned that uh, like like silence and this idea that so often like these conversations just aren't had right. at all right, right. Is, is there yeah I, I don't know like what do you, like how can society have the the type of conversations around these topics like that, that yeah. matter without yeah. it being like awkward or right. weird or is that just what our culture tells us right yeah that's a good question too i mean i do think it's we're well we're probably better at it than we were 50 years ago you know i think in the 50s people were pretty bad at it uh i guess that'd be 70 years ago I really don't think the media helps much. I mean, in some ways, it's more normalized. Sex is more normalized. It's everywhere, right? It's all over the media. It's all over movies and TV and everything, video. Um, but it's not really talked about or presented in a way that is deep. You know, it's really performative. And, um, and I think I'm much more interested in what's going on inside the person. You know, what's really going on? And, and those are harder conversations to have. I don't think that churches have done a very good job at that. I mean, some have, um, but a lot of churches have not. And, and frankly, some parents do a good job. A lot of parents do not. It's hard. You know, you have to kind of, it's risky, it's vulnerable, and it's even vulnerable to talk to your own kid about it, you know? And so, um, you know, I think some of it is just courage to have the conversation and to ask and to, but I think also some students that come here, I mean, they're longing to have the conversation, but it's a lot less weird to have it in the context of a course than it is to have it with your mom or your dad, you know, like that's a harder conversation to have. And so not for everybody, but for, for some. And um, so I think, you know, in some ways an academic class, it sets a kind of a space, it opens up a space for people to think about it when they might not otherwise do that because it's just, it's too vulnerable or it's too weird. Mm -hmm. um, it can be vulnerable in the classroom too, but it's somehow that setting kind of puts some parameters on it that right. it feels less scary, I think, for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then this, the second assignment that maybe gets frequently mentioned in the course is the, the date assignment, yes. right? Where there, there are some other, some other options of the, the social media fast. But I guess yep. since starting teaching this course, um, yeah. What like what feedback have you gotten? From, yeah. Do you have any funny stories from that? Yeah, assignment? yeah, yeah. That's such a great assignment. <laughs> yeah. I actually, incidentally, I, I, well, both of those assignments, the dating assignment and the um, anonymous paper, I nabbed them from friends of mine, colleagues mm -hmm. in the field. Mm -hmm. The dating assignment uh, came from a colleague at Boston College who's she's been like nationally interviewed about this assignment. Oh. It's such a crack up. Carrie Cronin is her name. <laughs> but anyway. Um, Yes. So that assignment, actually, my son, who goes to Brown University, um, told me that one of his colleagues, one of his friends 
had heard about this dating assignment at Santa Clara University, which just cracked me up. Like, wow, 3,000 miles away. And he was like, yeah, that's my mom that teaches that. But it's a fun assignment. I think because it, well, for a couple of reasons. One is I love that it um, invites people out of their comfort zone. And it's such, it's so funny to me that like asking somebody on a date can be so terrifying, you know, but it is. I mean, for most people it is, not everybody, but most. Um, and, um, and then I think also it, it just kind of, it takes this thing that just seems like, I think everybody thinks, uh, oh, well, that should be no big deal. And then when they're asked to do it, they're like, oh my gosh, that's a huge deal. You know, like um, it, it shouldn't be, but it is for most people. And there's something kind of playful about that, like being asked to do this thing that people used to do without thinking, you know, 50 years ago. But now we don't do it so much. You know, even 30 years ago, it was getting a little rare. Now it's super rare. So, you know, one of the tricky things about that assignment is that it, um, what I don't want is to invite people back into a space where it's a very traditional sort of boy does the asking, boy pays for it, you know, girl does the receiving. Like, that's not, I'm not interested in that. But what I am interested in is asking people to kind of venture out of their comfort zone, think about what it means to make yourself vulnerable to the extent that somebody might actually turn you down, you know, which sucks. Nobody wants to be turned down. But at the same time, that's kind of the stuff of life, right? Like we try for things, we don't get it. And I think kind of bouncing back from that is part of what makes us relationally whole. And so, um, and I, I think it does that. I mean, I've had students who, I've definitely had students who, in fact, not too long ago, I had a, a former student who's now graduated, and he's now engaged to the to the person he asked out on the dating assignment. So um, that's not an uncommon thing where people will, you know, end up in a relationship. Um, I have I also have um, a couple of <laughs> a couple of people who um, they thought they were really into somebody, and they made this huge whole hairy deal, and then went out on the date and realized like well, you know, actually, you know, they were kind of a jerk and, you know, and, and so then my follow-up question is always like, well, so aren't you glad you didn't just sleep with them? You know, like, I mean, it's kind of better to discover they're a jerk on a date. Right. And so, um, you know, so it really varies people. I did have one person who, um, he had to ask seven times before he got a yes, really great guy. I mean, I just, I think he just had some bad luck, but you know, that took a lot of resilience to ask seven times before he got a date. Um, and I gave him a lot of credit for that, actually. So, you know, I feel like... <laughs> Automatic A+. Plus yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Automatic A+, plus for that guy. Um, you know, I think it's, again, it's one of those things, in a different kind of way than the anonymous paper, but it's one of those things that sort of takes a seemingly everyday thing. And, you know, we speak a lot in this class about vulnerability, right? And there's, I think, one of the most vulnerable things that... that people experience is, like I said, asking somebody saying, I'm interested in you, will you go out with me? And then, you know, you don't know, are they going to say yes? Are they going to say no? That's an emotionally, mo emotionally vulnerable place. So link, if we're talking about what's the importance of vulnerability, linking that to the experience of putting yourself out there like that and realizing that like, even if it doesn't work out, like, I'm okay. I survived that. You know, I actually have this new avenue now. Like I could go and ask anybody out, you know, there's something very empowering about that. Mm -hmm. So, um, which I think opens up kind of a whole new space to think about what it means to be in the world, what it means to be a relational human being, you know, mm -hmm. that you get more out of it if you actually make yourself vulnerable in that way, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it will be interesting if you continue to teach this class for another, you know, five or 10 years, then with the 
the younger generation who's even more, you know, who like yep. they're behind Facebook. Like they would, they wouldn't even consider joining Facebook, right? right. Because it's only right. these other right. apps and stuff. And I think right. we're kind of in like my yep. class is kind of in this weird midpoint. Yep. But I, I'll You're be, at the tail end. Of I'll the be really, Facebook thing. I'll be really yeah. interested to see yeah. in in a couple of years if if it almost continues to get to get harder. Yeah. But yep. yeah. Yeah. Well, know. I think I mean. So the social media fast is actually. Well, it's still powerful, but for different reasons. Like people used to really hate giving up Facebook and now it's like nobody uses Facebook except mm-hmm. for, you know, organizationally, nobody in your generation. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Not nobody, but a lot of people don't. Right. Um, so I'm actually, I've already been thinking like, how can I redo that? I think the power of that fast tends to be more the, the texting fast than the mm-hmm. social media side of it. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I'm kind of rethinking that I wanted to provide it. I used to actually require people to go on the date mm-hmm. and I had, I remember I had one student, she was probably in my office. I don't, I don't know how many times about it, four or five times in tears. Like, I just can't, I can't ask somebody. I can't, I can't, I can't, you know? And I mean, on the one hand, I want to invite her into this, you know, new playground of fun, you know, that you get to be in control and ask somebody out. On the other hand, I don't want to like be the cause of, you know, a nervous breakdown here. So, I mean, I think some, for some people, they really just can't. And so I started giving the option of the social media fast Mm -hmm. for those who just, just couldn't do it. You know, Mm -hmm. we can only, we can, you can only do what you can do. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it does bring up questions of how much like of a story is kind of going on in our minds around what an experience will be versus like taking concrete actions in the world. And arguably it's, you know, it's a very worthwhile habit to cultivate of like taking action on, you know, at like in a way, like asking for what you want and not like right. continuing to be locked in right. your head yeah. about that sort yeah. of thing. Well, I think a lot of us, I and mean, we don't want to fail, mm-hmm. right? Risk taking is, I mean, really emotional risk taking. That's a really scary thing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, in this sort of commitment phobic world that we, that you live in, I mean, that college students tend to live in. People have this association, like, well, so if I ask somebody out, wow, they're going to think, like, I'm really serious about that person, you know? And I think the discovery that it doesn't have to be like that, you know, that you can actually just go and hang out with somebody and it can just be kind of a fun, playful thing, that, and, and it doesn't have to be associated to sex in any way, that's very freeing. Um, for a lot of people, that's a, that's a big realization. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So th- those are all part of the goal, I think. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to get into too much of your past, I guess, but I am wondering if there was like, was there a moment in life when you knew like you wanted to research and teach these sort of things or like, what did you think you wanted to do when you were in college? Yeah. My age? Well, so I came to ethics as a discipline pretty late. So, um, probably very end of college. I was a poli sci major, so I, I wasn't a religious studies major. But I, I do think, so I came into kind of the field of ethics generally because of these, um, the realization that uh, that religious faith is such a driving force, even for people who aren't religious, um, you know, in terms of values, systems, and so forth. Now, but, but in terms of the content of this class of sexual ethics, that was a pretty... Um, I mean, I'm a bioethicist actually before, you know, doing this and, and just a kind of a fundamental moral theology person. So, um, but I think that I've always, um, appreciated sort of the role of experience in the, in our moral universes. And I think this is in a college environment, it's the perfect way to access it. Right. Cause people really do want to talk about it. Um, I also am the mother of two boys myself. They're both in college, actually one just graduated from college, but, um, 
and you know kind of watching their growth and development and that of their peers and kind of what they needed and so forth i mean i think that you know provided a kind of an insight mm-hmm. and a, a, a point of connection for the struggles that they were facing mm-hmm. so um so i think i mean not there wasn't one point but there was there were kind of discrete points along the way, including right around 2010, where this conversation about sexual ethics kind of started to blossom in the U.S. conversation and um, broader conversation than Santa Clara. And um, and that's when, you know, I was I was invited by one of my colleagues to think about teaching a class like this. And mm-hmm. and there was really a need there, clearly. And there still is. That's the amazing thing. Like, it's still really uh, people really want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you could like, w- would you give your college self any advice? I oh, guess, that's a great or... question. If I were going to go back, I guess, or maybe if I were just going to speak into kind of a, you know, a college environment, I mean, I would just say the biggest thing is just to kind of know that you're not weird and that you are in charge of your own choices and your own life. And, um, you know, to kind of believe in yourself, to trust yourself, to pay attention to uh, what the wisdom that you know to be true and not what everybody else tells you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I also think that popular media right now is, um, it's so ubiquitous. I mean, you know, the, ever since people have had smartphones, it's like we're just bombarded all day long, every day long, you know, every day. And, uh, and I think that doesn't give us too much kind of space, you know, to really... Um, think about well where do I want to land in this landscape you know mm-hmm. so I guess that would be my thing I mean I'm not sure it translates across generation quite the same like if I were to speak back to my own self right, but right. but I think the invitation to really you know know thyself to mm-hmm. pay attention that's a that's universal it just looks a little different now than it did you know 30 years ago yeah so there's a couple shorter questions I like yeah. to ask at the end. So yeah. first, is there, are there any favorite places you've traveled to? Oh, gosh. That's a totally different kind of question. It is. Um, <laughs> uh, I love traveling. Uh-huh. Um, actually, I hate the actual travel. I yeah. hate airplanes. But I love being in different cultures. Right. I, you know, honestly, I think the bigger question is, is there any place that I don't like going? I mean, I've so my husband is Indian, so we often go to India. That's actually a rather hard place to travel just because it's logistically hard. It takes a long time to get there. You're tired. But it is so it is very interesting. I've been all over Europe. Love that. Love Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say any one place stands out. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. Or would you give any piece of advice to like a first year student at Santa Clara? Like, I guess you mentioned the know thyself, but I guess specific yeah. to kind of Santa Clara. I guess it, yeah. it doesn't have to be around. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I would actually. I mean, I, I think for anybody entering college you know I think the the times people get in trouble are when they feel like if they don't do XYZ they're not gonna have any friends you know they're not gonna fit in and, and it's a really tender time you know you leave you, you're leaving your family you're leaving your home often you're geographically displaced whole new kind of academic environment I, I think that um, you know when I think about what a first-year student needs First of all, I think they need to know that they don't have to rush anything, that they that there's lots of time. And probably the people that you gravitate towards in the beginning aren't going to be your long-term friends anyway. So just give yourself kind of grace, you know. But the other thing, honestly, is just to know that you are just awesome. Like, I feel like every college student needs to know that they're, they're deep, deep worth inside. And the time that that's most challenging to remember is when you're a first year. So... Um, and I think a lot of our a lot of our kind of 
problematic behavior that we see comes from people really not knowing that, you know, not knowing that they're just treasured, wonderful human beings. Um, so yeah, so I, I would just try to encourage people to, um, take themselves seriously, but also just, you know, just know that they don't have to be anything that they don't want to be, you know, they don't have to do anything they don't want to do, you know, Mm -hmm. just because everybody else is doing it or or whatever. Mm -hmm. So by the time you're a senior or even a junior, Mm -hmm. most people have figured that out. But, um, but a lot of times I think people in their first year, they're, they're displaced, right. Mm -hmm. And they're insecure. And, um, and so they haven't figured that out yet. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what yeah. would you want to say? Yeah, probably the same thing, the to same be honest. Thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of our problems come from kind of not taking ourselves and each other seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's what human dignity really comes down to, right? Like, we talk about human dignity all the time, you know, as if it's something that you you lose or, you know, it's not something you can lose. You can't lose your human dignity, but you can ignore it. You know, and we can ignore it in each other. And and I feel like the biggest challenge and invitation comes from just saying, like, wow, to really honor that in myself and in the other, that's I mean, that's like a life's work and it also paves the way for every other good thing that can happen. So um, that's really a big that's a big thing to say. But I, I I think that is I think when we disregard that spark of the divine that's in each of us, we get into a lot of trouble. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And finally on a lighter note, what does an ideal Saturday look like? Oh, that's such a good, that's a lovely question actually. Uh, it's probably includes a hike or some kind of outdoor, you know, skiing or something like that. I'm not skiing so much since I hurt my knee recently. Yeah. Uh, with my family. Um, well now my two boys are not at home anymore, which is very sad, but, uh, yeah, an ideal Saturday would probably be hiking with my family and dog. I'm a big dog fan. Mm. Yeah. What, what type? Uh, I have a golden retriever. Okay. There's probably a picture of her somewhere in here. Oh, so that's when she was a puppy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so yeah. much for doing this conversation. Yeah, thanks I so much for having me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can go to VoicesOfSantaClara.com to read a partial transcript of this episode. Follow on Twitter at VoicesOfSCU or leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. I'll see you next time.